uh, to this point in the book of Revelation, which you've been looking at all semester here at RUF. Um, we've had to skip around a little bit because there's a lot of chapters there. But to this point, uh, we've basically been highlighting a number of things, but two things which I think kind of rise head and shoulders above the others. Um, the first is that Revelation is, is a set of visions which are given by Jesus to the Apostle John. John was a friend. He was a contemporary of Jesus, lived with him, uh, ran around with him. He was a disciple. And Jesus gives John these visions as, as a means to say, Hey, John, there is more to this world than you can presently see with your eyes. There is an unseen reality to this world that's true, that's real, that's unfolding. And I'm going to show you part of that, right? And that's what Revelation is, at least partly, is, is Jesus pulling back the curtain of time and space and history and showing John some of those deeper truths which are unseen to our naked eyes. The second thing which starts to rise above uh, the others when we look at this are that there is a war that has been raging throughout history. It is a war between not just the forces of good and evil, but between God and the personification of evil itself, Satan. Satan and his minions versus God and his people, the church. And we've seen that very intensely over the last three or four weeks as you have these unfolding scenes of judgment. And, and you see how the church is persecuted and you see how the world, uh, what that persecution looks like from, from the angle of the world and the church and kind of all these different uh, sides. And, and tonight actually marks a little bit of a pivot in the way that Revelation is structured. Be from 19 to 22 through the end of the, through the, end of the book, um, it actually starts to focus on future things. We've been talking mainly about present reality and the unseen reality. Now Jesus takes John and starts saying, I'm going to pull back the curtain on what is to come. On what maybe historically you've called heaven. That one day coming reality that God is bringing to bear in this world one day, someday. So um, the, the, the way that this passage frames that tonight is through a vision of heaven being a marriage. That heaven is a marriage. Now, let me tell you um, something about this marriage through four different stories, quick stories. Because I'm trying to build a case for you that you care about this, whether or not you've even thought you do. Um, the first of this is something that happens every four years in America in November. We call them presidential elections. And every November, sorry, every fourth November, uh, the Wednesday after the presidential election, you have a large percentage of our country uh, that's exhilarated and that's thrilled because their person or their people got elected. And they think that everything's going to change now and our hopes and dreams are finally going to be realized. And on that same day, you have a whole other large percentage of the country that's crushed and that's devastated because their hopes and dreams have been shattered. Their person didn't get elected. They, their hero didn't rise to the top. Secondly, second scenario, the fact that you are elated when he asks you out or when she says yes, and the fact that you're crushed when he says, I think it's just not going to work out. Or she says, you know what, um, I don't want to keep going out with you or I'm going to end this. And that's a reality to all of us in this room if we've ever tried uh, romantic relationships. We know that's true. 
Thirdly, the third scenario is that some of you go and watch um, superhero movies and you love them and you get all wrapped up in them and you even might cry when the scene unfolds and it's awesome or not. And um, right, we get wrapped up in those storylines and they really, they move us at a deep level. Others of you, it's a sports team. Uh, Your team... uh, you either are exhilarated when they win and are winning or make it to the playoffs or make it through the tournament, whatever it is, or you're perpetually frustrated when they can't get above 500, they can't get to the playoffs, they can't do that next level thing. What do all these things have in common? That in all of our lives, there is this baseline reality that we are looking for a hero. We are looking for someone to enter our world that will bring some semblance of lasting joy and excitement. Someone who will help our life finally be worth it. Someone that will bring meaning and purpose, maybe. In Revelation 19, we see that that hero is not surprisingly as Jesus. That he is the one who comes and who, who anchors all of your hopes and dreams, the joys that you only find in proximity in this life, He is coming to fulfill those in a way that you can't even imagine. But which Jesus gives John a little insight into in this picture of a marriage. So tonight we look at the hero, we look at Jesus. Let's read this passage, Revelation 19. I'm going to um, read it a little bit backwards. I'm going to read 11 through 20 of chapter 19, then I'm going to go back to the first part of 19 because it flows better. When John gives these visions, or Jesus gives John these visions, they're not chronological. It's kind of like, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. And so I'm going to change the flow to help it um, make a little more sense. Revelation 19, beginning of verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linens, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It ain't all pretty, y'all. 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image." These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now to the first of the chapter, verse 6. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I'm skipping down to chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then chapter 22, 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take, desires take the water of life without price. This is God's Word. One of the greatest joys of mine as being a campus minister is, uh, is that I get to do a lot of weddings. Um, and that's just, that's not by right. It's because uh, you guys invite me into that, that part of your life. And you don't have to. I'm not obligating you, but a lot of you have in the past. I'm doing my 23rd wedding this summer, 23rd, 24th, and 25th over the next six months. And, and it's awesome. It's so fun um, because you get to see uh, the hard work that these people have put into a relationship. Um, relationships are hard work. Marriage is hard work. It's wonderful. It is worth it. It's hard work. But you see these two people coming together, becoming one, this union, the marital love. And it's worth celebrating. And receptions are, um, you guys are about to enter that wedding season of life where either you or your friends are getting married and you spend exorbitant amounts of money on bridesmaids dresses and tuxes and all this stuff. And you travel and it's expensive. So just mark it out in your budget. Um, But it's worth it. It's awesome. It's fun. Because marital love is worth celebrating. It's worth celebrating. This passage tonight has a picture of that. And the first aspect of that marital love that we see is that there is a marriage supper. There's a marriage supper. But before we can talk about that marriage supper, we've got to talk about this other picture we get there. In verses 11 through 21... We get a picture of judgment, of the final judgment even. And Jesus, the hero, shows up on the white horse and it says that he has a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, by this point, if you've been coming, you know the mantra that Revelation is full of imagery. The sword coming out of Jesus' mouth are his words. And his victory, if you'll notice, is ultimately won by him speaking. But it's kind of a, it's a great buildup for a great battle that was already won at the cross. And so Jesus' final victory is him saying, it's finished. The great battle is anticlimactic because it's already happened at the cross and in the resurrection. 
And so what we see in this passage, though, is is that coming judgment. And we see that um, it's pictured in verse 17. Look there, it's pictured as a supper. As the supper of God. And and there's this invitation for the birds to come and, and feast on the flesh. It's gross. It's vivid imagery. It's detestable. It's meant to be. It's meant to wake us up and say, things are not going to go well for the beast and for his followers and for those who do not bow the knee to Jesus. That's the thrust of this. But look, y'all, you have to hear this. I get it. The the idea of God's judgment is maybe offensive to you. It's maybe a reason why you don't embrace Christianity. It's certainly a reason why some of your friends don't. But you have to understand this. That God's wrath against sin and against evil, against Satan, flows out of his love. It has to. God cannot be indifferent to evil and to sin and to suffering because it's not like suffering's just out there in the air. Suffering, suffering and evil affects people, it affects his creation, and God loves. His creation. He loves people as the pinnacle of that creation. And so his wrath against evil is a just wrath. It's deserved. It's not over the top. It's exactly what is deserved. That means that everything in this world that has been done, every sort of evil, uh, maybe even to you, Certainly to people that you know, to your family, um, to classes of people, to whole races of people. Evil that has been done in this world in which appears to have been um, gotten away with. It hasn't been punished. It hasn't been um, properly um, judged here on earth. God is saying, I've taken note. I am the final judge. I will take care of evil. And there's comfort in that. There's comfort in that because that means that for those people who did that thing to you, which you weren't able to get retributive justice on, it's going to be taken care of. That means that God is going to ultimately show his goodness by punishing evil. That's the God of the Bible. He's not indifferent to evil and suffering. He has to judge it. But notice that that supper is given kind of as an antithesis to this other supper, to this marriage supper. And that's where we're going to camp out tonight. Let's look at verses 7 and 9. They're on the screen uh, or down in front of you. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage supper of the, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And down in verse 9, And the angel said to him, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So if, if you've been coming, uh, I mentioned that uh, this book is full of imagery. And this imagery isn't random. It's overwhelmingly from the Bible and really overwhelmingly from the Old Testament. And this idea of a supper, of a great feast, is straight out of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 25, it says this. On, the, on this mountain, uh, in this passage, uh, Isaiah has been, he's received a prophecy, a word from God about what it's going to be like someday. It's picking up this same thing happening here in Revelation. Speaking of that one day, someday thing. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, 
The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. It's, uh, it's not a low cholesterol affair, uh, but it's going to be a feast. It's going to be a big, big feast. Um, when Jesus was on earth and when he was trying to explain to his followers and the people around him what the kingdom of God was like, what he had come to institute and what he was going to do in his life and his death and his resurrection. He says this in Matthew chapter 22. He said, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who gave a feast for his son. The kingdom of God may be compared to a king who gave a feast for his son. So this marriage supper, the biblical imagery we get is that it is going to be a party. It is going to be the party of all parties. It's going to be the feast of all feasts. It's not, it's not like an Easter meal that ends at three. It's like an Easter Thanksgiving, Christmas dinner, 50th anniversary that goes on forever. Look at the phrasing. Look at the words. It says the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. The implications of that is that it's going to be ongoing. Forever. And ever. And y'all, God can afford it. He can keep bringing the goods day after day, week after week, month after month. It's coming. It's a picture of an enjoyment that actually satisfies. For some of you, this feast is going to be the only time you've ever had a meal where you haven't walked away feeling terrible about your body. For some of you, it's going to be the only meal, uh, the first meal in, in forever when you walk away and it actually satisfies you and you don't think that, um, that everyone was judging how much you ate. Or that you walk away feeling like, Ugh, now I've got to go exercise for five days. For some of you, this is the meal that you long for for your whole childhood of your family sitting around the table and actually talking and smiling and not just staring blankly at each other in passive aggression. This is the family meal that your heart longs for. And it's going to last forever. And in this picture of a marriage supper, um, we have to see that God pays the price. There's no splitting the check. There's no Venmoing after and putting a pizza slice on it. Like, God's going to take care of it. He's throwing the party. He's paying the bill. And it's going to last forever. But maybe the best thing about this marriage feast, maybe the best thing about this supper, is that it's thrown in celebration of a whole bunch of people who do not deserve it. And one who does. It's for a whole bunch of people who don't deserve it. And it's for one person who does. Jesus. The hero. The one who takes to himself a bride that has gone after other lovers her whole life. Jesus comes and his presence at this meal makes us 
all who are in Christ, it makes us worthy to receive it. Um, Sarah and I have a couple friend, a friend, a couple friend in town. Um, I'm going to call them Dave and Carrie, and um, we've gotten to know them to a fair degree over the last few years. And, and Sarah was talking to Carrie one time, um, I think within the last year or so, and Carrie had shared with Sarah something we didn't know about her. Um, it's that she had been married. Uh, before, before she was married to Dave. And, you know, she was kind of telling Sarah that story. And um, she got married either in college or right after college, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But um, for her and this guy, it, it didn't work. And this guy, I think, um, was abusive on a number of levels, may have been an alcoholic. And, uh, and the marriage just, it imploded quickly. And, um, and, you know, she talked about his fault in that and, and his abusiveness, but she also would own that, like, you know, she didn't do everything right either. And, and, and from that, she felt a lot of shame and guilt about it. And um, she talked about meeting uh, Dave and getting to know him and starting to date him later on uh, in her 20s. And um, Dave didn't have that background. Um, he had kind of what we might call a clean background. Um, he was from a good family, well-educated, had a great job, was doing well in life. And, um, and they started dating, and, and then they got engaged. And one of the things that Carrie said when they got engaged was, you know, I, I feel bad about having another wedding. You know, like inviting people to celebrate me again. Um, you know, doing the wedding registry thing again. Uh, you know, I feel weird about that. And it kind of got around to, um, to Dave's father that she felt this way and um, that she was really wrestling with the awkwardness of this. And he, he looked at them and said, look, it, the decision's ultimately up to y'all. I want, I'll respect you in whatever you decide. Uh, but Carrie, you need to know this. My son loves you. And we love our son. And we love you. And we love y'all. And there's nothing I would want more than to throw a huge wedding to celebrate y'all. There was Carrie in the midst of feeling very unworthy, knowing that she had messed up in some ways. Through Dave, her dad, his dad is saying, I want to throw a wedding. I'm going to pay for it. And I, I kind of, if you'll let me, I insist on doing that. And it's going to be big and it's going to be awesome. And we're going to invite all your friends. Again, we want to celebrate you. That's the picture of the supper. There's one person who's worthy. And we get in by his worthiness. And we get celebrated because he's amazing. And he wants to be with us. There's another um, thing at work here though also. Jesus gives this vision of this coming marriage um, to anchor our hope in the fact that look, God doesn't, He's not immune. He doesn't ignore our, our mess-ups. He doesn't ignore our sin. He doesn't ignore our rebellion against Him throughout our lives. He's forgiven them. He hasn't ignored it. Jesus has paid for it. He has paid the price. He has won us over as His bride. So that means that um, at that supper, there's going to be people who are jerks right now, today, in this room, you, me. There's going to be people who have hurt you. 
Maybe your parents. Maybe a sibling. Friends. A guy or a girl. There's going to be people who have lied and cheated. Like me. Like you. There's going to be people who have been addicted to all sorts of things. Like me. Like you. You see, what we bring to the table is our unworthiness. And Jesus more than covers that with His worthiness. His righteousness is adequate for us. We get clothed in that. And that's the second thing we see. We see the marriage attire. We see what's worn at this wedding celebration. Um, What, you know, our culture, and I'm not complaining about it, it's just true. Like, we go crazy about bridal stuff. Like, there's bridal shops, there's boutiques, and then you have the big David's Bridal. There's bridal magazines, there's bridal trunk shows, there's bridal trade shows, there's bridal event. Like, there is stuff for, for brides' clothing and all that all the time. And it's awesome. Except when you got to pay for it. i got three girls. Uh, <laughs> I, I just kind of black out when I think about it because I don't, I don't know how we're going to pay for it. Jesus, take the wheel. Um, but it's great. It's worth celebrating. A bride, we want her to look beautiful. We want her to get all done up. Verse 7 and 8, Jesus talks about the clothing. He says, Let us rejoice and exalt and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we see the people of God here in this passage in their heavenly existence as a bride with all of her wedding day adornment, clothed with the righteous deeds of the saints, with fine linen. It's pure. It's beautiful. It's stunning. But look at the wording right there up on the screen, verse 7 and 8 in front of you. It's kind of confusing. It says the bride has made herself ready. In the very next breath, it says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. So which is it? Is her attire, is her adornment her own doing? Or has it been granted to her? Yes. The image for this is from Isaiah chapter 61. The vision, uh, the word that God gives to Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Listen, God provides the clothing, He provides the righteousness. This is what happens when we trust Jesus. We get His righteousness like a robe. And He he gives that to us. We don't earn it. We can't deserve it. We don't trade for it. He gives us His righteousness. We give Jesus our sin. It's a trade. And we put it on. He gives us the clothing and we put it on. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It's not on the screen, but um, I'll read it for us. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Look, what Paul's saying is, 
And he's talking about salvation, which is what Revelation is like. If this were your own doing, if you got yourself into right standing with God, if you could make your way to heaven, then you could boast about it and you would brag about it and say, look at me. I'm awesome. Look at my righteousness. Paul's saying, no, it's by grace. You didn't deserve it. It's God's gift to you. Just take it. Listen to the next verse. Verse 10, chapter 2 of Ephesians. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Read the righteous deeds of the saints. We were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's a picture of the bride of Jesus, the people of God in heaven, beautifully clothed in God's clothing, which we put on and do. So friends, if you think the Christian life is about just kind of saying a prayer and, and maybe some of you did in high school or in junior high or when you were little, and then you can just go do whatever you want for the rest of your life and that your, that your life doesn't matter, that your works don't matter, that is categorically unbiblical. They do matter. Do they save you? No. But the absence of them in your life is like you leaving the robe on the hanger and saying, that's a really pretty robe. Man, that is really soft looking. That would be amazing to walk around in that forever, but, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. So the bride has herself ready. God gives her the clothing. But there's something even more amazing about this attire. I'm sorry, let me, before I go there, last week, um, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to go there. There's another vision, Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11. Look down in front of you. It said, And he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Uh, When John sees... A vision, a further vision later in Revelation of of this new city. And we're going to talk about that next week. Of this new city coming down out of heaven. He says again, it's like a bride arrayed in radiance. It's radiant. What does radiant mean? It's bright. It's shining. It's, It's hardly, you can hardly look at it. It's so beautiful. What is that radiance? What does it say right there? Look in verses 10 and 11. What is the radiance? It's the glory of God. God's goodness, His righteousness, His his perfection is what makes us beautiful. Let me tell you why that matters a lot. Because... Oftentimes, and I know this is true because I talked to you, I know it's true for my own life, I know it's true for my friend, it's just true. Oftentimes, we think that God kind of thinks as us, uh, that he, he deals with us like this. Um, yeah, I've forgiven you. Yeah, I've cleaned out uh, all your sin. Um, yes, I've done everything for you. Will you stop embarrassing me already? Will you ever get your life together and stop doing that thing that you told me for the last four years you'd stop doing? 
Will you get with it already and just clean yourself up and get together? Will you finally be the beautiful bride that I'm telling the bride I'm telling you you're going to be? When are you going to be there? And we think that God is just kind of impatiently waiting for us to change, and that He's um, like tired of us, and, and He's making um, uh, He we're making all these dumb mistakes, and He's disappointed. But hear this. If you're here tonight and you are a Christian, which I know is not everyone, but if you are and you're a Christian, you know, God never thought that you were all that awesome. Cheer up. He didn't. Like, He was never that impressed with you to begin with. And He's not going to be impressed with you on your own in glory. What's He impressed with? What's the thing that makes him say, wow, his glory that he clothes you with? And when you're clothed with it, though, he looks at you and says, you are stunning. I've never seen anything like it. I love you. Oh, gosh, you're beautiful. You're radiant. I want you forever to be with me. And there's not one of us in this room that doesn't want that to be said of us. We long to be affirmed in that way. To be told that we're beautiful all the way down. Cheer up. It's not about you. It's about Him. Lastly, there's an invitation. Invitations are sent out. 19 verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Notice it says, blessed are those who attend. It's not what it says. It says, blessed are those who are invited. It's a blessing to hear the invitation. If you are here tonight and hearing this, there's a blessing in that for you. Maybe it's the day that that your life starts to change. Maybe it's the day that some things become more clear. There's a blessing here. I don't know what that looks like, but it's promised. But there's more. Chapter 22, verse 17. Listen to this. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one uh, who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Uh, A friend of mine named uh, Brian Habig, who I listen to uh, regularly. He's a great pastor, preacher. Uh, I listen to him today about this sermon. He talks about a book that he read uh, a few years ago. And, and Brian, I worked with him um, when I was at Vanderbilt. He was the campus minister. I was his intern. And um, Brian, is a, he is a, he's a serious introvert, um, which is not anything negative. He just is. And he owns that about himself and, and talks kind of jokingly about being an introvert in ministry and how he just tries to hide from people and all that stuff. So it's pretty funny. Uh, he read a book called Quiet, which is a book about introversion. And um, the author is a guy named David Weiss. And David Weiss just kind of is also owning his own introversion and just kind of uh, the way that looks in his life. Um, He's a musician. He's happily married, lives in New York City, I think, is fairly successful, has a child or more. And, um, And he talks about his childhood. And he says, um, you know, I, I wasn't popular. I was not. I may be well-liked now, but that was certainly not true of me before him. Um, I struggled through uh, elementary school, junior high. I was kind of the musical nerd, and nerds get picked on, and music people get picked on, and blah, blah, blah. 
Um, then he kind of started to transition out of, out of high school and he began um, to be a drummer. And he said that was his chance to be cool as a musician, right? And so that was his kind of movement into stardom and he became uh, rather famous. But here's what he said. And this is fascinating thought. Um, he said, I wish, I wish that I could send a signal from now back to nine-year-old me and tell me that it's going to be okay. You're going to make it. You're going to be okay. And as my friend Brian talks about that, he says, you know, outside of the impossibility of that, you know, time travel and all that stuff, that thought is pretty amazing. Like, that would be pretty awesome. I could have used that in junior high. I don't know about you. Like, that would have been pretty clutch. Um, But listen to verses 17 of chapter 22 again. Who is it that's saying, come? The Spirit and the Bride. So yes, God is inviting, come. The Spirit says, come. But who else is saying come? The bride. Who's the bride? The church. The people of God. So let me apply this for you real quick. If you're a Christian, the future glorified, heavenly, with Jesus version of you is saying, come on. You can do it. You can make it. It's going to be okay. That thing you're going through right now, press on. It won't be like that forever. Trust Jesus. Follow Him. You don't have to plan your life out to the nth degree. You can trust Him. Come. And this is going to get even a little weirder for those of you who may not be Christians. Yet. What if the future version of you is in this passage saying, Come. Come. That thing that you're holding on to right now, that's keeping you from coming to Jesus right now, it's not worth it. It's never going to satisfy you. It's never going to fulfill you at the deepest levels. It's never going to give you that lasting enjoyment that this feast will. It's never going to do it. Put it away and come. Come. Taste of the food without money. Come and eat. You don't have to buy I am buying it for you. Come. Come. It's the invitation from the supper of the Lamb, from the marriage that is coming. Come. It's Jesus' invitation to you. It's some of our future invitations to you. If you're in Christ, it's your invitation to yourself. You can do it. You can make it. Come on. Let's pray. Father, we do um, pray that You would... um, Give us that vision to come and feast and rest and be beautiful and to be married to You forever. Lord, let that image, let that coming reality fill and flood our minds and hearts. Let it take our dreams to the next level. Lord, convince us that nothing in this world apart from you is going to ultimately satisfy us. But you will.
pray you give us faith to hold on to